Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. You probably have put your fingers into a finger trap before, probably as a child, and you know that no matter how hard you pulled, the harder you pulled to get it out, the tighter the trap got. No way to get it out. So you strain, and your uncle laughs, whoever gave it to you. You strain and you strain to get your fingers out of the finger trap. It just gets tighter and tighter. So how do you get them out? It's counterintuitive. It's not what you'd expect. For those of you who are younger, to protect you from your uncle, so you know, what you do is you push, you push your fingers together, and then they slip out. There is a very close comparison here between what happens with a finger trap and what happens in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember a decade and a half ago, I was in high school, and I was confronted by my own sin, and I remember finally finding myself stuck in it and trying as hard as I could to get myself out. But the harder I tried to put away my sinful temptations, the tighter it got around me. I couldn't get away. I remember taking all my video games, because they were my life at the time, put them in a box in the garage, and it lasted a week, and they were back. (laughs) You know that feeling? I was like what the proverb said, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Or like Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I started by enjoying sin, and then sin started enjoying me. (laughs) Pulled my fingers hard as I could, and it wouldn't budge. I almost shudder actually remembering how hopeless that felt. You probably remember that. Some of you maybe know that in your own experience right now. But I do want to say as well that I can tell you in all honesty that today I'm free. I'm not sin-free, but I'm free of the dominant power of sin in my life. You say, well, how? how? <laughs> you know, how, did you, how do you do that? It's counterintuitive. You would think that, oh, this is what happened. I saw in the Bible the do's and the don'ts, and I just tried harder and harder and harder until finally I got out of my sin, and I triumphed, and I planted my flag upon the mountain of sanctification, and I was a holy one. (laughs) No. No. It doesn't work that way. It's counterintuitive. It was actually when I stopped pulling so hard (laughs) and pushed. I did what was opposite to what you would expect. This is what freed me from my sin. That's the way that the gospel works. You would think that the gospel would come to you and say, do, do better. But actually the gospel comes to you and says, it's already done. You would think the gospel would come to you and say, why don't you love God more? Love him more. But actually the gospel comes and it says, God already loves you. It was not for me a matter of more action. It was actually a matter of surrendering the actions that I was doing freely by faith and not by work. That's the gospel. 
freely by faith, I was delivered from the guilt of my sin and from its power. Now, what's counterintuitive about this is that you might expect, once I found forgiveness in Christ, calling out to him one night in my bedroom, you would expect that since my record was cleared and the promise stands that no sin can stand against me on the day of judgment, from that moment on, being freed, I could now enjoy my sin without feeling guilty about it. That's what you would expect. But the gospel is counterintuitive. It's not what you would expect. I never found more success in fighting sin than after my sin had already been forgiven. So long as the law of fiery Sinai is booming with thou shalts and thou shalt not, and that's all you have, so long as that's at your back and you're trying as hard as you can, to run as fast as you can, to earn salvation, to earn the favor of God, so long as that continues, you are stuck. You will not get out. You will take sins and move them around, and they'll still be there. There's no victory over sin that way. It's not as you hear the thou shouts from Sinai, from the law that you're delivered. It's when you turn your ear and you hear from Calvary, Father, forgive them, because I don't know what they're doing. It's when you hear, it's finished. It's at that moment that the weight of your sin and your guilt and your entrapment falls like a burden off your back and rolls down the hill just like Christian pilgrim's burden and into the sepulcher, into the grave and is gone and you are really free. It's not what you'd expect. But you push instead of pull. The gospel says you're not condemned for doing wrong, and it's only then that you stop doing wrong. It's a counterintuitive thing. And I mention it because it is the focus of the two verses we're considering today at the beginning of 1 John chapter 2. Look at this with me, 1 John 2, starting here in verse 1. My little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. We saw last week at the end of chapter 1 the these things that John was writing to us, and it was mainly that God is light. So if you claim to be a Christian, you also must walk in the light. More than that, you will walk in the light. That's what we saw last week. But you'll notice that that wasn't all we saw. We also saw John saying things like, if we confess our sins, God is faithful. He'll forgive you every time. Now, you might think for someone like John, who tells us in this first verse that he's writing, wanting you not to sin, that he's just cut his own legs out from under him. If you want people not to sin, don't tell them that after they sin, they can just ask forgiveness and they're forgiven. If you want people not to sin, don't continue, but if you do sin, don't give them an out. 
Our natural thinking is don't give them an out. If you give a sinner an inch, they'll take a mile. You need to come down hard and you need to warn them about the judgment that's coming. Don't give any leeway. But in fact, John, who's very firm, gives lots of leeway. Throughout the history of the last 2,000 years, the history of the church of Jesus Christ, there have been a lot of objections to this gospel that we're talking about right now. This idea that those who surrender, confess to Christ, trust in Him and what He did on the cross can be completely forgiven. No works added. There were objections in Paul's own day. He deals with them in this letter to the Romans. He says, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? You see the logic there? If you're forgiven under grace, should we just sin? The medieval Roman Catholic Church also objected to the reformers in its midst who came and said, wait a minute, we don't have to jump through any of the hoops of your sacramental system. Jesus already finished the work upon the cross. We simply must believe in him. And the Catholic Church's response was, if you tell people they can be forgiven just by trusting in Jesus and not by doing this list of things, then people will trust in Jesus and just go sin as much as they want. That is what you would expect. And yet the logic of the gospel is counterintuitive. As someone has said, the only sin that you can put off is a forgiven sin. Legalists will always scream, pull harder, work harder, do more. But it will never set you free from the power of sin. The gospel confounds that wisdom. The gospel says it's already been done. Calm down. It's already been done. You can have it for free. That's grace. Turn from your sin. Believe in Christ. So what we see in the gospel and what we see in our text reiterated to us is that the gospel does not one but two things. The gospel pardons our sin. And the gospel also prevents sin. It pardons sin and it prevents sin. Not one or the other. So let me show you that in this text. We're beginning here with the gospel preventing sin because that's where our text begins. Then we'll see pardon sin after. So look at this. John is starting here with the fact that the gospel prevents sin. Look at this. My little children. I am writing these things. Things, these things referring both to his whole letter, but especially to what he wrote last week about the gospel. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You may know that all except two of the Ten Commandments are negative. They say don't. In the Hebrew, they all begin with one small word, Low, and low is negation. It means don't. Low, 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 low. All but two. And one of those two even has a low in there. It's just later on. That's why the good King James, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Don't, 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 as we'd say it today. That's the way the Ten Commandments work. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Let me ask you a question. When God delivered his people out of their enslavement in Egypt by a mighty hand and he brought them through the wilderness to Sinai to receive these glorious good commandments, 
After he, on those stone tablets, had etched, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, gave it to the people, did they stop doing those things? Before they got to Sinai in the story, you remember they were hungry and they grumbled against God. Then they get the Ten Commandments. Surely they stopped grumbling, right? No. They grumbled before the Ten Commandments. They grumbled after the Ten Commandments. You'll remember that they rebelled before they got to Sinai. And you know what? They rebelled after they got to Sinai. They turned to idols before the Ten Commandments, even while the commandments were being written by the finger of God on the mountain. Then God gives them that commandment, you shall have no other gods, you shall make no graven images. And you know what they did after they got those commands? They had other gods and made graven images. Don't, don't, don't do that, don't. And that may be your experience with the church as well. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And then you do it. What hope is that? How does this verse, 2 John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, differ in any way from the Ten Commandments? Because you notice he says, I'm writing you this letter. I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. Same purpose as the Ten Commandments. Is that sin? Don't do that. The purpose of Moses carrying those two stone tablets down the mountain to give to the people. Moses could have said the same thing when he wrote the second. He said, he could say, I'm writing these commandments for you, Israel, so that you may not sin. That's why they all say don't. So how does this differ from the Ten Commandments? Well, I think you get the first hint of a difference in the very first three words. Look at this. My little children. Now the law in the Old Testament was not without grace. And you remember that even the Ten Commandments, before God gave them to his people, he said, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So even under that Old Covenant, the Old Testament, God was merciful and demonstrated mercy. But you can see here, that in the new covenant that Christ has brought, there is a tenderness that you don't see at Sinai. You don't hear from the mount, blazing as it is with fire, the sound of trumpets glaring, blaring around. You don't hear, my little children. <laughs> but when you read John here as he gives the gospel, he starts, my little children. Hebrews chapter 12 recounts what happened at Sinai when God descended on the mountain and it basically exploded. It was on fire, billows of smoke ascending, loud sounds all around. Hebrews 12 says, you today, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Low, 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 don't, don't, don't. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, don't touch the mountain. It shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The gospel, like the law given there, 
is interested in low. It is interested in you not sinning. But it goes about it in a different way. There is a tenderness in the gospel. The law says to you, don't touch that mountain or you're dead. The gospel says, listen, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you see how they're saying the same thing? Don't, don't, don't sin, don't sin. See the difference in tone? <laughs> the gospel reaches out a kind hand to the leper and touches him. It doesn't say don't touch this mountain. It reaches out and touches him. The law is good, righteous, just. There is nothing wrong with the law. When God descended on Sinai, it was good. He's a powerful God. He is righteous. Don't think of it as bad. But there is a tenderness expressed in the gospel that we need, my little children. As Hebrews 12 continues, it says, you've not come to that mountain. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And you've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, this is why it's different. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You might say if we walk away from the don't, don't, don't of Sinai, the law of God's holy will, if we walk away from that here and now to the gospel where Christ fulfills that law for us and we're freed from the guilt of violation, well, then we'll just be lazy. Because when God was there, as we saw in our Sunday school, he came in power so that the fear of him would stay with those people so they wouldn't sin. True. So you think if Jesus comes in gentleness lowly, riding on a colt. If he comes and dies and offers forgiveness, instead of saying, don't or you're dead, then won't Christians just be lazy people? Then you can just sin. You can do whatever you want. There's no fear. It's like an overly lenient parent, right? My little children, it's too soft. It's not too soft. Listen, if you as a believer have overcome any abiding sin in your life, you know there is an element of the fear of God that helps, but you know that what helps the most is a melting sense of the love of Christ in the gospel. It's counterintuitive, I admit this, but it's that my little children, it's that tenderness that melts your heart. It begins to thaw you so that you have the energy and enthusiasm to put off your sin. It's not the don't, 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 don't all by itself that convinces you to don't. <laughs> it is the mercy of Christ. It is this tenderness that we find in the gospel. We saw this, even if you just think about the these things in verse 1 here, I'm writing these things. If you look back at the previous section, even though he was very clear, you have to walk in the light, he also said, verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then John steps back from statements like that and says, listen, 
little children, I'm writing those kinds of things so that you stop sinning. Here's Sinai. Don't or you're dead. Here's John. My little children, come in the light. Confess your sins. You'll be forgiven. It is the same appeal. Stop sinning. (laughs) But it's made quite differently when we receive it in Christ. That's why he is a mediator. He goes between us and God. The people said, Moses, be our mediator. We can't stand before God. And God said, you're right. (laughs) Jesus is a better Moses. He stands between us and God in all his power and righteousness, takes God's wrath, and we receive mercy. These gracious lines, this gospel that we're given, the blood of Jesus is not a permission for sin. It's obvious because right here, my little children, I'm writing these things to you, great and merciful as they are, so that you may not sin. So first, I hope you see that the gospel prevents sin. In a very tender way. Now I want to turn from the gospel preventing sin with John because now he's going to tell us very clearly the gospel does something else. The gospel also pardons sin. This is where the paradox of this finger trap becomes most evident is when you hear of the gospel pardoning sin. John tells you right here in verse 1, I'm writing you this because I want you to stop sinning. And John could, as we sometimes do with each other or our children, he could threaten you. He could give you that look. And if you're married, your spouse has a look, right? You know, and it's that look that doesn't say anything, but it says everything. And John could do that with them, give that look of disapproval and disappointment easily. A parent to a child, do that. God could, John could threaten, he could give the look He could express how disappointed he is that they are not stopping sinning more. (laughs) So those are options that are open to John. But notice what option he chooses. How is he going to encourage them to stop sinning? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Wait a minute. (laughs) Wait, John. If you don't want your readers to sin, don't give them that caveat. (laughs) Don't give them that way to slip out of things. You told them, don't. Don't sin. But then you said, but if you do, you can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. And of course, in our minds, the thought is, if you say it like that, then why wouldn't they just keep sinning if you're going to be forgiven anyways? That's always been the objection brought against the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It's too easy. It's too free. Surely there must be some stipulation, some fine print, something you have to do, some level you have to reach, a sacramental system, Or some level of holiness and only when you reach that, when you climb up on hands and knees, the Via Dolorosa, when you get there, then at that point, forgiven. And yet for John, it's just the opposite. He says, listen, stop sinning. And here's how I'm going to encourage you to stop sinning. I want you to know that if you do sin, you're forgiven. Do you feel how counterintuitive that is? 
But that's exactly what he's saying in this text. Now, on the one hand, this is counterintuitive. On the other hand, you've seen reflections of this even in the natural world. Probably all of you know or know of a parent who has tried to suffocate the sin and rebellion out of their children and just end up suffocating their children, really. This may be someone, let's say a father who's a pastor, Lord help us all, or someone who's a pastor or someone who's a, uh, in a public position, and so they're aware that their children are being watched. And so they may exert an undue amount of pressure, like Sinai looming over their children. Don't, don't, don't run in the halls. Don't touch that. Don't do that. And you're trying so hard to exert this pressure because people are watching or maybe a different circumstance, but you're trying to suffocate that sin and disobedience out of your children. How does that work out? Do your children grow up under that weight, that crushing weight of the law that you exert upon them? Do they grow up and go, wow, I love these good righteous commands and I want to obey them all my days? God can intervene, and that may happen, but not naturally. That is a crushing weight, that look of disapproval, that glare, trying to force them into the right direction, not giving them leeway. You don't want to be like John in this text, giving an out because you're afraid they'll take it and sin and disobey. So you give them no out, you give them nothing, and you just say, obey. And if you don't, discipline right away, immediately, no mercy. That's the way that Sinai speaks. Sinai gives good rules. You tell your kid to stop running, that's probably a good rule. But it gives no mercy. It gives no, but if you do sin. There's none of that. Because it thinks if I give you that, you'll sin. Even in the natural world, that doesn't work. Because that will work on your child when they're very small. Because a big, looming Sinai of a father will strike fear into the small child, and they will mind you to some degree. But what happens when they grow up and they're bigger than Sinai? (laughs) And then they have no reason to obey except a fear that no longer exists. Their obedience was only fear deep. So once that's gone, rebellion. Now, the gospel is not unwilling to encourage some fear in us. Ananias and Sapphira, in the church, God put them to death. And it says, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So we're not dismissing the proper use of Christian fear of God, a reverence for God. But your obedience cannot be only fear deep. It can't only be if I don't perform perfectly as a Christian, God will be so disappointed with me and may bring horrible things into my life. It's going to be a hard way to live. That's the way the law speaks. You are living as if you're under the law, as if there's no mercy, as if there's no but if anyone does sin. Our obedience is not just fear deep, it's love deep, it's gratitude deep. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So let's take just a few minutes here. And I want to consider this gospel that pardons our sin. And I want to see if drawing close enough to this fire, it will warm our heart a little bit. 
You may find that your own sins, kind of like those bonds that were on Samson when he was awoken by a Delilah, it said they were like flax heated by fire. It means he just easily broke them apart. And there is something to the Christian coming to the gospel, counterintuitive as it is, with the bonds of your sin, and they heat up and they break much more easily. So let's just consider the gospel that's presented to us here in these verses, the end of one and going into two. Consider first how the gospel pardons your sin in the present. That's the point of this first part. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now that is assuming that you are a part of the we, that you're truly a regenerate believer. But if we assume that, say you truly characteristically in the light, you're a Christian, then what do you have? Listen, you yourself have an advocate. What does it mean to have an advocate in Jesus Christ before the Father? It means you have a defense counsel in the courtroom of God. God, here listed as our Father, God himself has been offended in his holy law, the don'ts. We didn't keep them. You didn't keep them. God is a righteous judge. And therefore, if we're to imagine this as a courtroom, and there you are, there's the judge. And you are brought in there, and you have the devil accusing you. And it's an open and closed case, folks. You're guilty. You know you're guilty. You can try to deny it. But the evidence is there. This is a lost case. And the punishment is not some prison time. It is an eternity away from the presence of God, suffering his wrath, righteous wrath, for the sin we've committed. So there you are, hanging your head, knowing how things are going to turn out. What can you do? You can't stand up and say, judge, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to change my life up. I'm going to give money to the poor. I'm going to be a different person. It's too late. The wrongs are committed. It's not going to work that way. There's Nothing you can do, and then the spotless Son of God stands up. I mean, you could almost weep. You couldn't make him stand up. He stands up. He didn't have to stand up. He stands up. This is judge. And he begins to argue your case. This is what it means to have an advocate with the Father. We don't have much of a case <laughs> to be argued. We'll see what he argues in a second. But listen, if you're a believer, you know that on your own you would be condemned. But let me remind you that Jesus never loses a case. He hasn't lost one in the past. He's not going to lose one in the future. This moment, he is in heaven, in some way, arguing your case before the Father. And you may have had just an awful week this week, and you have sinned in ways that you haven't sinned for years, and you've treated your spouse or others like dirt, you've reverted to old habits. That may have been your week, and you come in here not feeling worthy to be in the house of God, and feeling like God's just tolerating you. Listen, God's not just tolerating you, because Jesus never loses a case. You are as innocent right now as you were last week before you did all those terrible things. You believe that? This isn't dependent on you. This is dependent on the advocacy of the one who stands in that courtroom. And listen, he never loses a case. You and I one day are going to die and stand before God 
And we know that we are Christians, we believe the gospel, but you know that in darker moments, you start to think, will I be able to stand in the day of judgment? This isn't like you get two tries. What if I get there and God refuses me and an eternity in hell away from him? That's a heavy weight. Jesus never loses a case. He's never lost one. If he's taken up your case, he's not going to lose your case. Look, you could give him the worst case. You could give him the worst evidence. And he's not going to lose that case. You're going to die, stand before God, and there would be every reason to hang your head. But you can look up to God's smiling face. And the judge bangs the gavel and says, not guilty. Not guilty. (laughs) Not guilty. Because Jesus never loses a case. You believe that? This isn't Jesus Christ, some novice lawyer, some new defense counsel who's never been around the block. This is who? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Your eternal happiness in Christ does not depend on how you do this week. It depends on how well Christ pleads your case this week in heaven. And he never loses a case. So first, Jesus pardons you in the present, even now, pleading our case in heaven. Now, you may wonder, I've not given him any good evidence. How is he pleading my case? (laughs) How am I going to be not guilty if I'm guilty? A good judge can't just say you're innocent if you're guilty. And God is a good judge who says from the mountain, Sinai, I will by no means clear the guilty. So how is this going to work? Well, this is because Jesus not only through the gospel pardons your sin in the present, but he pardoned your sin in the past. That's where we turn now. As we move to verse 2, he is, if you have the New American Standard and maybe some other translations, it tries to bring through something in the Greek by saying he himself is, it's emphasized. He's not just advocating, but he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Is it enough that Jesus died for you? In the courtroom of heaven, yes. It is enough. That's what it means. He is the propitiation. This is Jesus, your defense counsel, pleading with the judge. And you wonder, what's he going to say? And he points not at you, but away from you to the cross where he himself died. And he says, judge. I know this person has committed sins, but you see this cross. We made an agreement that I would die upon that cross and take the wrath for that person's sins. And the judge agrees. The judge is propitiated. That means that the anger or the wrath that God feels toward you for your sins, it's gone. You turned on his anger by your sin. God pushes, Jesus pushes the button, turns off his anger by what he did on the cross. Justice is not violated because the sin is still punished, but it's punished on Jesus on the cross. That's why he's the propitiation for our sins. You may remember the third chapter of Zechariah gives us a vivid image of this very thing. Joshua, not the one in Canaan, but Joshua the high priest many years later, Zechariah has a vision of Joshua the high priest standing, quote, with Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. 
And we are told Joshua was, quote, clothed with filthy garments. And if you've read Leviticus or any part of the Old Testament, you understand the strictness of the ceremonial law that the Levitical sacrificial system of the Old Testament required a complete outward purity. If there are any kinds of deformities or uncleanness outwardly, a person could not be a priest. There were all kinds of washings that had to happen. So here's Joshua, and Satan is pointing at Joshua the high priest, saying he's not worthy to be a high priest. Look at his garments. They're filthy. And you know what? Satan is right. It's the one time he doesn't lie, I guess. Think about Uzzah. He simply reached out his hand to protect the ark as it was falling, and he was dead. Think about Nadab and Abihu. They simply offered up an incense different from what God had commanded, and they were dead. Here's Joshua the high priest, and Satan is standing in that courtroom saying, I have precedent. I have precedent. You're a holy God. You have to put this man to death. And that is exactly what would have happened for God said in the case of Nadab and Abihu, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. This is an open, closed case. Or it would be. If the angel of the Lord, who may well have been Christ before his incarnation, had not intervened in that moment. And we read, the angel said to those standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua, he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Zechariah says, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord, perhaps Christ, was standing by. Those garments... Those are the righteousness of Christ. And there we are one day to stand before the Lord in the courtroom of his justice. And we are clothed naturally with filth. We've been rolling around in it. Don't try to say you're not that much of a sinner. You are, and I am too. We've been rolling in it and it covers us and it stains us to the deepest parts of us. And Satan is there pointing a bony finger saying, you deserve to die forever. And Satan is right about that. And then Jesus intervenes. There he is standing as the advocate, but he's not just the advocate. The judge says, how can you argue this person's innocence? And he says, because I myself am the propitiation for his sins. He takes that filthy garment. He puts it over his own clean body. And he goes up onto the cross with it. And God judges Jesus as if that was his garment. It's not his garment. But he judges him as if it's his. That's your garment. You put the mud on there. He takes the wrath. What are you going to wear? Just like with Joshua, Jesus takes his clean, pure garment, whiter than any aloe on earth can make it, and he hands it to you and says, put this on. So there you are in court and Jesus pleads your innocence and Satan looks over and you are perfectly clean in the sight of God. God is not looking at you in wrath anymore, but his face has changed and he's looking at you with the same pleasure he feels toward his perfectly obedient son. That's yours because he's the propitiation for your sins. 
You have the righteous credit of Christ given over to your account. This line at the end, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, I think you can tell it's pretty obvious he's not saying every person in the world gets this clean garment. It requires faith in Christ. He's saying it doesn't matter where you are on the globe. This was written in the Middle East. It doesn't matter that we're here far in the West. Irrelevant. This was a clean garment Christ earned not just for those believers then back there. It was one for you today. Not just for their sins, but if you believe in Christ, if you run to him for refuge from the wrath to come, you get this garment. And if you've believed, you wear this garment now. I don't know how you think about yourself. Some people tend to think of themselves as the scum of all the earth, the worst ever, ever, ever. Borrow the biblical language and in the dust of the earth. Listen, that may all be true. As far as God's concerned, you're righteous. You're innocent. Objections rising from the week before? Forget those. Listen, in God's sight, you're innocent. Jesus doesn't lose a case. Jesus is the one who's making the argument that on the basis of his own death, his own work, you're as good as innocent, as if you had never sinned. So when you look up toward heaven and you are thinking, what does God think about me? You ever do that? Does God approve of your life? Does he not? This says, God approves. God approves of you. Not because of you. Because he's been convinced by his own son whom he gave in love to be the propitiation for your sins. The judge bangs the gavel. Not guilty. And the devil storms out, infuriated, saying, that's not fair. And you know what? He's right again. <laughs> That's so not fair, but that is just because Jesus is the propitiation. He has taken the wrath of God. It is paid for. So let me ask you this in closing. When you leave this room, knowing those things to be absolutely true of you, what kind of life are you going to choose to live? The world objects and says, every person in here is going to walk out those doors and live like rebels against God and ride motorcycles and do all kinds of crazy things. Fine if you ride a motorcycle. <laughs> you're just going to live a wild life, yeah? I'm telling you, you're not going to. You believe the gospel, it not only pardons you, but when your cold heart gets close enough to the warmth of this free grace message, it thaws your heart. It's hard to be a very cold person living in a perpetual spring. And that's what the gospel is. And it thaws you and it motivates you to believe and to fight sin and to overcome sin. What are the habitual sins you're dealing with now? You're an angry person. You explode. You're addicted to pornography or something else. What are the sins you deal with? You tend to gossip. You can't hold your tongue. You say, oh, how do I overcome this? Try harder. Try harder. Push. <laughs> First, know that you are forgiven. And you may feel yourself like that woman caught in adultery. Jesus interacted with her. Jesus came to her and said, where did everyone go? Doesn't anyone condemn you? And her response like yours is, no. There you are in the courtroom, surprised, not guilty. How did this happen? Does no one condemn you? No one, Lord. And then Jesus' words to you are, 
neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more.